Catch you fuckers at a bad time. Maybe you can sing the theme song. Won't hold it against you if you get caught wrong. Wow, the memory's not too strong. It's a piece of you from a time long gone. Is this still good? Is this still good? The question that remains is, is this still? Is this still good? Is this still good? Hello and welcome back to Is This Still Good, a podcast, and a lot of people don't know this, that is the first Marvel podcast. It's true. Wow. It's not true. I'm Sage Bilderbeck, and with me as always... Is Gavin Murray, the other host of this show. That's right, I'm here time. too. <laughs> He's still here. Has not been cancelled yet. And uh, Gavin, what do we actually do on the show? Well... We discuss properties from our childhood in general and uh, whether or not those fond, fuzzy memories, um, upon revisiting the source of those, remain fuzzy and warm or take on like kind of a moldy sheen that you decide that maybe is better left in the bottom of a wastebasket. Yeah. Does it, does it ferment good or does it ferment wrong? <laughs> yeah. And do we do that by ourselves? No, often we have guests. Sage, do we have a guest today? We do have a guest today. Uh, we have Lincoln Myers, who I'm very excited to join us to talk about Blade. Hello, Lincoln. Hello. Happy to be here. Excited, too. Excellent. So, Lincoln, you have a, a, a special connection to, to Blade. Is that correct? Yes. I'm a Director's Guild member uh, as an assistant director, not as a director, and uh, i was part of something called the Directors Guild Training Program, and it was my last assignment as a DGA trainee before I ended up joining the guild as a full member. And it was, and consequently, it was also my first assignment as a full member of the guild. Wow, that's awesome! I had been on it for a couple of months, and uh, I completed all of my requirements for the training program with two weeks left to go on the film. So normally they would have gotten rid of me and hired another director's guild trainee. And uh, I convinced them to just, uh, just keep me on because I knew the show and to pay me a little bit more money as an assistant director. So would you say that you really got to sink your teeth into blade? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was an awesome experience uh and uh the you know everything about it, the good and the bad. It was it was definitely a, a full range experience of of everything. I mean, there was there was a, a a lot of uh great stuff about it and a lot of pain in the ass stuff about working on it as well. And that's one of the reasons why uh uh, some of the things that I'm a big fan of that I hear are difficult shows like The Mandalorian. I'm happy not to be working on it because I, I think I enjoy <laughs> it a little bit more when I'm not as critical or I don't remember some of the uh, lame parts of working on something. Yeah, I mean, that's that's always the case. We all love movies here, but our industry could be very hard and difficult. <laughs> It can be, but then sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised to work with a, uh, an actor that I admire and um, just find out that they're a terrific human being. Yeah. And uh, actually, it was, um, you don't know sometimes when you're going to work with someone who's a big star, but uh, Wesley was like super cool and uh, really, he was very quiet and kept to himself, but a uh, uh, nice guy and um, not not a terror at all. There was, you know, wasn't like super 
demanding or unreasonable or anything like that, but he does love his drum circles. <laughs> we will we will follow up on that later. Before we get uh, too much into Blade, yeah, uh, I'd really like to know. So so at this point in time, you're in LA. You're training in the DGA. Uh, where are you yeah. before this? Where are you from? And how'd you get to LA? Uh, well, I'm East Coast originally, uh, New York, Maryland, Virginia, uh, different points of my growing up of my childhood. And, uh, and then I went to school for film uh, out in Austin, Texas. And, uh, and then I packed up a U-Haul and moved out here to make my fortune. What was what was Austin like? Because I know that's been a city that's changed a lot over the time. I'm, I'm just curious, like, so you, what well, years were you there and was it good experience i was there 87 to 92 uh it was a great experience it's uh uh university of texas is a huge uh school in terms of student population and um uh so you know it's it's easy to be anonymous and get lost there but it's also a lot of fun there's you don't run out of people to meet um it was uh unusual back in the uh late 80s and the 90s in that um, it was not a, uh, there wasn't a lot of population in Austin. I think it was 250,000 people. Um, so the university of Texas had like 50,000 students. So that's a good chunk of, or that was a good chunk of the whole population of Austin. And yeah. during, uh, the summer or the Christmas holidays, it would just shut down. It would just get super quiet if you didn't go home and, you know, if you stuck around, uh, but it was uh it was a great experience because there were so many different so many different things uh different subjects to take and I pretty much just treated college as you know when else am I going to get the opportunity to have such a concentration of uh subjects and learning available to me so I just pretty much uh took anything that caught my interest uh I got into uh fencing for a number of years um <laughs> That's right. just because yeah I was like well what am I going to do this semester? Oh, fencing looks fun. So I'll do that. And it was awesome. I did always want to do fencing. You should. And, and are you, uh, are you in a film program at this time? Yes, I did. Uh, well in, in Austin, which is not like UCLA or USC or something like that. They've, they just call it radio, television and film. Yep. That was my school. <laughs> yep. So everyone wanted to be in the film program. Not as many people cared about the TV program. So right you had to, there was like a seniority for students. So you had to do, mm -hmm. uh, you know, several semesters before they would let you start doing film production classes. So like film theory classes and criticism and stuff like that. Uh, so I did those, um, cause I wanted to do film, but in the meantime, I was like, well, TV is just as good. I still get to, uh, create and direct projects in TV. It's just at the time TV was doing it on video and, right. uh, film was doing it on film on celluloid. Yeah. And as so as you make your way to L.A., what are you are you, what are you trying to do within your career? Are you trying to go director? Do you want to be an assistant director? Do you know at this point? No, well, I wanted to direct. Uh, it hasn't necessarily worked out that way. Um, but uh, I had some experience and background in the art department when I moved out to L.A. So mm -hmm. uh, I started looking for anything I could get. I started off working as a uh, an extra or a background artist, as they uh, say, the more respectful term. Um, and I did that for a little while, uh, just to keep money coming in. Um, but it was great to do that and experience what that is like, um, for people who are often thought of as being on the bottom of the totem pole. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and those are the kind of people that I deal with closely, uh, a lot. So I have empathy for those people now. Um, and then That's I got, important. yeah. And then I worked in art department for a couple of years and, uh, I was working on a Roger Corman film. 
and met the production manager from that film and uh, found out afterwards that she was going on to another film. And I gave her a call and said, I'm interested in trying out being an assistant director. She was kind enough to uh, say, great, we're going to hire you and train you on the job. And I started doing that. Uh, and then like a year later, uh, I was accepted into the uh, Directors Guild uh, uh, AD training program. So were those subsequent, did you work on several Corman productions? Yes, I did. I worked on, let me see, uh, I think it was called Saturday Night Special. And then I did Revenge of the Red Baron, which was one of those horrible, stupid, uh, I guess, you know, kind of horror movies, but it was really mm. much in the in the vein of like the Toy Master or something like that, you know, and it was it was pretty funny. Uh, there's just some stuff that as I was doing, I was like, this is so ridiculous. And then I worked on a uh, my third and final movie for Corman was Blood Fist Six Ground Zero. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Do you have the poster for that movie? Did that movie have a poster? Uh, oh yeah, no, it's uh, there's a whole Blood Fist series, and uh, the there's a very famous kickboxer who stars in it and stars in all the Blood Fist series, uh, Don the Dragon Wilson, and uh, <laughs> super nice guy and everything, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, and actually we're friends on Facebook uh, still, and uh, I uh, subsequently met and worked with his wife as well, who's uh, in the industry as a makeup artist. Um, and it was uh, it was awesome because it was my first experience with really with uh, a bunch of stunts. I mean, we did some fight stuff on Thirty Eight Special, and uh, uh, but but nothing at Blood Fist levels. Nothing at yeah, exactly <laughs> Blood Fist levels. No, but no, it was my first real like martial arts thing. But I was uh, in the art department during that still. Yeah so, the the idea of Corman films to me are still somehow romantic even though i've worked on a lot of low budget stuff and like i'm you know when you're there a lot of the romanticism disappears <laughs> when you're day to day oh yeah but like there's something very beautiful about like that that can exist i guess in certain respects right well it was actually a terrific um a terrific place that they had set up uh down in in venice california um uh because you well let me back up there's uh you could you could buy they wouldn't give you for free but you could buy uh one of those letterman jackets that a lot of times they used to give away for uh for working on a film at the end of the film uh that uh said the roger Cor excuse me it said the roger corman school of filmmaking on the back and that's really what it was because you could come in there and you could almost ask to be in any department and uh they would let you in a way it was like on job on the job training for a lot of the stuff yeah um so it really was kind of like you know, that showed to me that they had a little bit of a sense of humor about themselves that they, you know, because it sounds like it's not completely professional and maybe it wasn't. But uh, right. he was he but he had figured out his system for turning out low cost, low budget movies and still making a profit on them going straight to video in those days. Yeah. No, I remember hearing him like I've heard I've listened to quite a few conversations with him. I also just the tenor of his voice and how sweet he sounds. Uh, um, you know, possible exploitation aside and such, but <laughs> um, I mean, that's but yeah, like an important part of film history, right there. <laughs> but being able to turn a profit on like ninety eight percent of your your films, and that you get to make things like Blood Fist Six, or um, you know, I, I'm forgetting the names of like a lot of his more classic ones, but like Attack from the well, Blood Fist One through Style five. things, yeah, yes. exactly. Little Shop of Horrors, uh, yeah, did the, with Jack Nicholson, the right. uh, the the Terror with Jack Nicholson, um, 
Death Race. The Shining with Jack Nicholson. (laughs) (laughs) Cage Teeth. Like a lot of the ones that have become famous enough that we don't always think of them as Corman pictures. Like Like which ones? Well, I'd say Cage Teeth, Death Race. Uh, Death Race. they're, They're all, yeah. Yeah. But, uh. They're famous enough that I don't group them into my head with like some of the lesser known Roger Corman ones that I right. know anecdotally. Right. Yeah. Or like the the trauma esque films. <laughs> right. Right. That would you would find in in the same bin at Walmart. Your yeah. asylums. Your. <laughs> well, that's that's a that's a slightly different <laughs> level. I don't think Corman or Troma are trying to trick people the well... same way asylums. <laughs> Am I allowed to curse on the show or not? Yeah, it's Go allowed. It. It's yeah. We're gonna quote some Blade stuff. I'm assuming later too, and uh, you know he has a little bit of a potty mouth. Yes, himself. we got to get to. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Actually, what's really funny is right before I uh, started there, they did their Fantastic Four movie, and I was bummed that I had missed it by like a year. Oh or something. yeah. Oh Mike, you could have. Yeah, there were there were Corman Marvel movies. You could well, have there was on that the one first at least. Marvel film. Wasn't the was the <laughs> Captain America that was like ninety one not also a Corman? Oh, I don't know. Because I feel like that was the same thing where, uh, yeah, Marvel had sold off so many of their film rights, and uh, people are going to lose their rights if they don't make a movie. So you get things like a Fantastic Four movie made for less than a million dollars that gets buried, and I think the Captain America thing was the same way. Yeah, I've yeah. heard it's less than Fantastic. <laughs> leave the dead air leave the dead air <laughs> so when the the blade movie comes out later i'm just i'm just throwing this anecdote in now like a lot of people consider it the first marvel movie because they just ignore those two and the dolph lundgren punisher movie that came out in the 80s and howard and- the duck which counts as an actual movie but like not worth talking about in the same in no. the same category as modern marvel movies that is a lot of qualifiers but okay. And and there's uh that Spider-Man movie from the 70s which looks so bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's just international Marvel movies that have been made out of license forever. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. I've got Turkish Spider-Man on myself and uh I'd watch it more often with people if it just didn't turn into softcore porn at types. Oh man. Yeah. Also Superman's in Turkish Spider-Man as no. Yes. Captain America. Why not? Villain. It's it's weird. It's wild. And the soft core scenes, or yeah, it's, yeah. It's a it's a big world out there, Gavin. So Lincoln, at what point in your career are you getting to work on more traditional big studio films? Uh, I think as soon as I was a DGA trainee, um, I was working on. Uh, immediately, I started working on TV shows like um, Nine Hundred Two One Zero or Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two One Zero back then and uh, uh, the original Ellen show, Mm. you know, so I was doing a bunch of TV and then I did some films as well. And uh, I did uh, Liar Liar, uh, which is um, probably that and Blade are the best movies I worked on. Um, I read an article not long ago uh, talking about uh, comic book or superhero movies and kind of the rise of superhero movies and in that they discuss how uh, Batman and Robin almost killed the whole genre and Blade revitalized and brought the genre back to life. And I was uh, happy to, uh, it was kind of pleasantly surprised to see them mention both those movies because I worked on both of them. That is very cool. I'm I'm an unabashed, I've, I love. I'll, I'll give you a Batman and Robin moment if you want to fan out. I oh yeah. entirely misunderstood and... I think it's it's tied for my favorite Batman movie with like with the Dark what? Knight and Batman Returns. Why? <laughs> I, I I think it's just thank it's, you. Come back it's anytime. Fabulous. I like Schumacher. 
I, but, I like oh a lot of Schumacher God. stuff. It's so it's just a different brand of Batman, and I think it's equally valid and lovable. Oh I, well, I, I, I guess <laughs> if you hold it up side by side with the '60s uh, Batman show, it's it's more in that vein for sure. And I think it's the next level of that. Like I love yes. Adam West too, but like Batman and Robin for me is like it, it works wonderfully. But we don't have to harp on that. We're here to talk about Blade. <laughs> it is certainly easier and more enjoyable to watch today than if you are if you have an expectation of a batman movie and you're watching it in the 90s i imagine but by what measure it's it's more enjoyable is gonna be case by case (laughs) i don't remember what i was going to see originally but i went to a theater with my uh girlfriend at the time um or i guess fiance at the time and uh, we wanted to see some movie and it was sold out. Might have been Titanic because I was the same year. Then we were like, OK, second choice. We want to see another movie. It was sold out. And Batman and Robin was not sold out. And I said, well, I worked on it. At least we can look for my name in the credits. Um, and we watched it. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, Warner <laughs> Brothers. I'm sorry, Joel. But it was so bad. By the time I got to the end, I was like, well, at least I can watch my name in the credits. And my name wasn't in the credits. Oh, no. Because no. <laughs> I worked on the second unit. And so, like, the, the credits for the second unit, they gave it to, like, the uh, they gave credits to uh, the department heads and very mm-hmm. few people besides that in that okay. movie. So di- different from how they do the credits nowadays where... Um, you know, they just go on and on. They give they credit everyone gets everyone. a credit, but the extras basically, right? They cre- yeah, exactly. They- so uh, I, w- I want to talk a little bit more about DGA stuff before we go into the the history of Blade and and the actual movie. Okay. Um, what's so so when you when you join the DGA training program, do you have to put in a certain amount of hours, a certain amount of days? Do they just assign you stuff and throw, and you have to say yes to everything? How how did it work in the nineties? You are well, and still works like that today. You are basically that was my follow up. You're a slave. You're you're at their beck and call for the program. Um, they assign you uh, a show to work on. You go and work on that show for I think it's like fifty days or something like that, and then they switch you to another show. Um, and uh, yeah, pretty much you you go wherever they they send you. Um, I was fortunate when I got into the program at the time that there was all there was like no shortage of shows. Uh, there was more than enough for the most part to go around uh, for everyone. So you have to do 400 days to get through the program uh, of working on set. And uh, so I got through that in two years. Nowadays, though, the the people in the program are having a much tougher time getting through. They'll sit around for, uh, you know, sometimes months with no show and not Aww. getting paid anything and they have to figure out what they're going to do to survive and make money in the meantime me i was hoping for some time off uh occasionally excluding this year obviously why is it why is that different are there just more people in are there less shows are there i think that the training program maybe had more prestige so uh back then so there were a lot of shows hiring dga trainees um Mm. they cost a little bit less than ad's uh they have a little bit less, uh, at least in theory, uh, experienced than ADs, um, but uh, they have more experience than a lot of PAs. Um, right. Not all of them, though. There are a lot of PAs who uh, had more experience than, than a Director's Guild trainee, especially sure. if they're new to the program. Well, shout out to my friend Jordy, who just graduated, actually, from the DGA oh, yeah. uh, training program. Uh, she did most of her stuff on It's Always Sunny. Great. And sounded like a good crew. So Yeah. 
That's awesome. Uh, for our audience, and I suppose a little bit for us, uh, if you don't mind breaking down kind of the AD department and their responsibilities on film sets. Okay. And which, which role you ended up filling on Blade. Okay, cool. Well, uh, so there's the first AD, and that's the person that's closest to the director. They schedule the whole uh, shooting of the movie uh, or TV show, what scenes are going to be shot on what days. Um, they... I mean, they're they're like the voice of the director a lot of times or their right hand person uh, to go to every department and make sure that uh, every department from art department to costumes to set dressing um, has what the director wants for their vision. And like if the director doesn't want any red in the show, except for like one thing on someone's uh plate of food or something like that, then they have to make sure. And then they've got a right-hand person, the second AD, who also they lean on a lot to uh, uh, relay all that information to everyone. The second assistant director works on uh, kind of like the the close-up view of scheduling things, like um, which is what I'm doing now. Uh, I'm looking at, you know, what's going to be shot Monday, what's going to be shot Tuesday, uh, and making sure everyone's prepared for that and kind of enacting the schedule that the first AD put together. Um, and then beyond that, you've got a second, second AD who um, nowadays is usually the person who's on the set with the first AD and they're telling the background actors uh, where to go and they're helping the first AD get things quiet and they're keeping an eye on everything and they're making sure that everything's moving along and, and, you know, just helping the production like right there on the set. Like when I first got into the training program, it was, uh, and got out of the training program, we we're at the tail end of the era where the second AD was that person on set. And, but they also had a lot of other work to do. Um, and, uh, the call sheets, which come out the day before, uh, shooting and tell everyone what time they have to show up and all the elements that are involved, you know, um, with, uh, shooting the upcoming day. Uh, those are done by the second AD and, uh, we used to do them by hand while we were standing on set, uh, setting the background artists and telling them what to do and keeping things quiet wow. and, and making sure no one walked into the shot and stuff like that. So, uh, so yeah, that's where the second second AD started to replace the second or the also called the key second AD on set um, as the right hand person of the first AD. Um, and then uh, there's uh, what we call in the United States additional second ADs, which come after the second second AD. And for people who don't who wonder why you call them the second second AD instead of the second or instead you of the third the AD. Third, yeah. Yeah, it's I have no idea to okay. be honest. It's, it's a it's a DGA thing. The only thing I can imagine is there used to only be first of all there used to only be a first AD. That was the only I mean back in the probably the 1930s, 1950s, whatever. There was only a, a first AD, and then you eventually had a second AD. Uh, that the first AD must have said this is too much work, and I need someone besides a PA who's skilled and can. Mm -hmm you know, knows what the hell they're doing and, and isn't, you know, isn't an idiot. So I need someone who's trained. First so, AD is still too much work, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually they started having another AD besides the second AD. And I can only imagine that it was someone who was trained as a second AD and didn't want to be called a sec uh, third AD 
because maybe they felt like that was a lower status. So they must have said, well, I'm just the second second AD who's on the set. I'm not the first second AD. So that's the only thing I can imagine. And everywhere right. besides the United States, it's the third AD. That seems less of a status than third. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like it'd just be like more assistant directors like before i worked in film i'd hear second ad and i'd just be like oh that's just like another assistant director the director gets two assistant directors yeah and then yeah and then we don't and you know anywhere else besides the united states they go to fourth ad fifth ad sixth ad and people have those as titles oh, wow. if you watch the credits on movies like james bond movies and stuff you know oh, wow. marvel movies uh well marvel movies that are made outside of the u.s anyway which is most of them, I think, at this point. Well, I mean, they're made in Atlanta, uh, a lot of them, but then they also, a lot of them go abroad. Uh, so there's like multiple crews on them. But yeah, in, in the United States, everyone be, uh, beyond or below the second second AD, we just call additional second AD. Um, and it seems like a lot of times the uh, additional second AD is the person running base camp telling the actors, you know, it's time to get into makeup or they're ready for you on set and that sort of thing. Just and to finish out the duties. Which of these are you are you doing on Blade? Uh, on Blade, I was the DGA trainee, which is below any of the ADs because <laughs> okay. I wasn't a full DGA. I wasn't actually a DGA member. I was just kind of under the umbrella or the protective arm of the DGA to some degree. Um, so, but I was doing. I was basically uh, the base camp AD and okay. the uh, the attraction of hiring a trainee instead of uh, an additional second AD is they cost a little bit less money um, and. When I became uh, the additional second AD on Blade for the last two weeks of production, I was like, this is great. I've got the same amount of responsibility, but more money. This is awesome. Yeah. That is the can dream. I, can I yeah. ask, like, so when you got the ask or like, I guess you were saying you're kind of like just sent to a thing, but like when you found out you were going to work on Blade, what did that mean to you at the time? Uh, it didn't mean a lot. I knew that it was vampires. I knew it was a mm -hmm. superhero movie. I was like, this will be interesting. Um, the, I wasn't the first trainee to work on that show. There was another trainee before me. And mm -hmm. um, uh, he had quit medical school to join the Director's Guild training program. Um, he thought it was going to be cool and fun. And uh, he discovered that it was actually a lot of work and uh, thankless long hours of, of sure. work and shooting and uh, and so he was on it for, I don't know, a, a week or a couple of weeks. And then I think he just decided, fuck this. I'm going back to medical school and uh, quit the program <laughs> and is That's probably making is. Uh, was probably making more is probably making much more money than the three of us combined now. I mean, you really make it sound like it's just the, the bad parts of being at a fraternity. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I mean, it's rough. My first job ever as an A.D., I was so pissed off to be getting four hours of sleep uh, a night or some, you know, uh, and, and working much longer than anyone else on the crew. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's like, it's hazing, man. It's like that. It's like boot camp. You get used to surviving on very little sleep and uh, used to not complaining about it. But so you, you know that going in, you've got vampires, Wesley Snipes, maybe. And um, what was what what was your first day then? Especially if you're coming in mid, like movie. What is the set piece that you walk into? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I just remember it was on location. It was cold out. It was dark. We were shooting at night somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was. I mean, I think I was just trying to get my bearings and my footing, uh, and just you know 
you come in in the middle of something and it's so chaotic and everyone right. knows what's going on except for you. And I was just trying to find my footing and figure things out, figure out the names of all of the actors, uh, all the hair and makeup people, all of the politics and base camp. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just figure out how I could walk that tightrope and make it all work, you know, and, and not let people down and, and, not be the guy that gets yelled at for screwing stuff up. Now that I've moved to working on a bigger type of movie, I feel like I'm in that situation. Whether I'm I'm whether I'm the sound mixer or whether I'm the boom up, I'm still like trying to figure out who do I ask the questions I have to. Who am I allowed to yell at? Who do I have to? Not necessarily out of anger or anything, but just just to get stuff done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the interesting thing about this job because. I think most of the world has a job that you stay at for many years. Um, and then eventually, you know, you get fired, you quit, whatever. Uh, but in the film business, we all have a job for probably a matter of months. And then we always know that we're getting fired eventually when the show ends, when there's no, no more work to be done for that show. So every few months or twice a year or you know twice a year if you're if you're lucky to be looking for work uh, that infrequently um, you come into something especially as an ad and you're trying to figure out who do i talk to to get my get the job done things can change from show to show and uh you know there's just you just learn as quickly as you can uh who to go to and who's going to actually be useful in getting information out or actually getting something done that's probably enough inside Blades Ball for an audience that came to listen to us. Don't don't uh, quote Wesley Snipes. Gavin's shaking his head and is just very disappointed with my pun, and he should just be yeah. used to those puns by now. How much did you know, or do you know now, about the history of Blade as a character? Um, I love Blade. I think he's cool. I don't know. I still don't know a lot. Um, I think Blade used to be white. Is that correct? Before we did the movie. Uh, no, was but Blade like they changed black? basically everything else. No, he was, uh, I mean, if you can look at his first appearance in Tomb of Dracula, like Blade as a character <laughs> is very much taken off of the, uh, the exploitation wave in film. Uh, awesome. so not only is he black, but he's, he is, he is Wesley Snipes black. I bring well, that up cool. because I was watching his appearance in the Spider-Man animated series and it was super interesting yeah. how light skinned they drew him, <laughs> oh. which I've also noticed more and more just happens in 90s cartoons and it's kind of uncomfortable <laughs> mm. where they just have to take a played character, but they they lighten them up to not scare kids or something. I don't know what the what the logic is. Maybe it's a literal animation thing that saves money. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I don't yeah. certainly don't want to go into too much of something I, I don't know about. But Blade is he's not half vampire. He's a He's a human who is immune to to being a vampire, like as he's fighting vampires. And then he actually gets bit by like an artificial vampire. And also he's English. <laughs> oh, and I think right. That makes so, him, that makes that makes his blackness slightly less threatening. Right. If he's English, <laughs> possibly. I don't know. Well, it, it, it makes it a different uh, sort of of racial story that you're telling inherently. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like the Blade franchise as a whole doesn't necessarily do much with the fact that Blade is black. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. 
I can't wait till Mahershala uh, portrays him. I cannot wait to see that. We'll definitely wait, talk about that. Oh, yes, Gavin. So Blade has been <laughs> basically confirmed as being in the MCU, whether as a movie or as a Disney Plus show. And Mahershala Ali came out at the announcement and he's he's going to be going to be a Blade. Wow. Unless right. it falls okay. apart I'm and ready. we never get movies again. Who knows? <laughs> oh, no, they've got to do it. Especially if he gets those glasses on. Yeah. Yeah. That haircut. Um, you just take yeah. him from Alita Battle Angel and like, I see it. Yeah. I And it's funny because I also worked with Mahershala uh, on a TV show many years ago. And so, I, I mean, I'm just thrilled that he's uh, getting that opportunity because he deserves it. It's great when you see good people actually, you know, succeed also. That's one of the cool things about this industry is you work with someone when they're, uh, I don't want to say a nobody, but they're not well known. They don't have two you know? Oscars. Yeah. They're coming yeah, exactly. Up. Yeah. And uh, as an actor, and then um, you have people that you remember enjoying working with and people that you enjoy less working with. And, uh, and it's just great because to, to watch from afar, sometimes these people and uh, see their success, you know, and uh, I just, I just enjoy it. I vicariously get a thrill when I see someone that I know is a good person um, just uh, 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 succeeding and getting bigger and bigger roles. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, pivot, pivot back because I don't know how to segue. <laughs> uh, well, I was to real, really quickly drop that, like according to Wikipedia, which is, as we know, is fact checked, infallible. And, yeah. Um, during the development of this movie, they did toy with the idea of maybe making him white, oh, <laughs> which yeah, I'm not so. surprised. I mean, but I think that's how film was for a long time. Yeah. But Wesley was uh, one of the producers on Blade, ultimately, anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, I mean, he, I think he got into it partially maybe because uh, he was so into martial arts um, and uh, brought that to the table in a way. Yeah, as I understand it, uh, Wesley Snipes had been trying to get a Black Panther movie off the ground in the early 90s. And they're just, um, for whatever reason, didn't get made. Maybe there wasn't the right interest. Maybe they couldn't. I mean, that's a more complicated story than Blade. So maybe they couldn't crack it. Um, maybe. But he, he like like you and like me and most of the audience in the 90s, didn't really have any familiarity with Blade. And he didn't approach it as a comic book character. He, I mean, at, at one of the quotes I read, basically... He just wanted it to be a cool uh, kung fu flick uh, mm -hmm. where he plays a badass in leather just a couple years yeah. before Matrix. <laughs> yeah. And there are some great, uh, there are a couple great martial artists who are involved in that movie. And uh, so that was kind of cool for me just to um, rub elbows with some of these people and with some of the, uh, some of the cool character actors like Udo Kier that uh, shows up in that movie. Yeah. So it's the, the fact that it's a Marvel movie uh, matters in 2020, but it, it didn't really in 1997. It didn't necessarily to the people making it. I don't think it mattered to the audience because I think people uh, flocked to this as a Wesley Snipes movie, as a vampire movie, as a, as a, like a Hong Kong martial arts flick. So that's drawing yeah. in a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. And that's, that's one of the reasons we're talking about Blade. <laughs> Hmm. Where would you place this? Because I'm, I'm. Where is this in in Wesley Snipes' career? 
Is this post Demolition Man? Yes. Then I'm assuming. Yeah. I don't because that that I think was my first entry point to like really knowing Wesley Snipes was him in Demolition Man, which is an incredible performance. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, I think New Jack City for me was when I first heard about Wesley. I think uh, I think mine was also Demolition Man. I grew up with a lot of early '90s action movies that my dad loved, and I know I've seen mm-hmm. like ten to twenty, including ones that are almost directed TV. Like I remember watching The Specialist a lot, mm. as a, which is just about him making bombs. And uh, some of those movies, if I watched them now, I'd be able to tell how much smaller they are than others. But I don't think I could tell as a kid. Uh, U.S. Right. Marshals. Passenger 57. Like I yep. watched a lot of Wesley Snipes and only a couple of them. Only Yeah, well, if I hadn't seen these as a kid, they would go over my head, too. For the audience at home, I did a over-my-head uh, gesture. Apologies. It's not good podcasting. And I think, I think it was applied. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Wesley Snipes, first and foremost, was Blade as soon as I saw it. And yeah. it'll always be Blade in my head. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that like, um, you know, you talked about the original version of Blade being a British human. But like, I, after this movie, I don't think you can go back to any other version of Blade. Like, Wesley yeah. Snipes is Blade. Like, I'm, Mershala Ali's got his big, big, big leather boots to fill, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and like, Wesley Snipes, this might be the peak of his career. He gets to be an action star for quite a bit longer. But like, this is peak Wesley Snipes at the point where he gets to produce a major action, produce and star in a giant action franchise. I mean, how is it like working with, with Wesley as he's a big star? I mean, you said very nice things about him, but like, can you, can you tell that Wesley knows what a big deal he is at this point? Um, I think so. I think that uh, he was treating it as if, you know, I'm the producer or one of the producers. It's my company uh that is um that is that has that's going to have a name you know at the beginning of the movie at the beginning of the credits uh he had a uh i think he had a i don't remember if it was a bus or a semi-trailer for his dressing room and uh another one i think just for uh a workout gym you know to lift weights and stuff like that so it's like a tom cruise level of influence on his movie I think, well, maybe at the time, Tom Cruise at the time, maybe it was certainly, yeah, it was like somewhat comparable to what I heard about, you know, Dolph Lundgren or uh, wow. Sylvester Stallone at the time sure. were, you know, having their own uh, workout semi truck trailer, you know, to, to with all of their gym in it and stuff like that. Right. And as you stated, this is an Amon Ra film. Like, as yeah. well as, like, I think of it as New Line, but, like, the first title up is Almond Raw Films. And what does that, that mean to, to you? What should that mean to me? That's, I don't... That's that's Wesley Snipes' company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and Amon Ra, of course, is a, a reference to ancient Egypt. Yeah. I didn't know if this was going to be one of those uh, kung fu produ- producers that uh, Gavin's <laughs> always talking to me about as if I know who they are, like Golden Road or something. Or Yeah, no, Golden Harvest. Golden Harvest. No, no, this is, right. uh, you know, and I, I, I don't know if, I guess was Blade one of their, their first films? I, di- I didn't actually look into Amon-Ra too deeply, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, it looks like Blade was their first film. <laughs> Speaking of Blade, we should probably start talking about it as a movie. I feel like it's time to do a summary. Mm -hmm. So now audience is the part of the podcast where we bicker over who has to uh, summarize Blade. (laughs) Which one of us do you think saw it 
uh, later in life, Sage. It sounds like you had you you you'd seen these growing up. Yeah, I I think I was trying to think of like when I first maybe saw this movie, and I I definitely. Uh, as unfortunate as it is and like you know i i i um, also associate blade with ryan reynolds as like the actor who made me watch it first so i may i I don't think i watched blade trinity first but i don't think i saw blade until blade trinity was out which age-wise kind of makes sense so you probably saw Uh, two three and then one no i I probably watched one first um and you know it's it's we'll get to that later but it's my favorite of the trilogy but um (laughs) Yeah, I, I can I can go for it if you want. Sure, let's let's uh, unless Lincoln wants to wants to tell us what happened in Blade. No, thank you. <laughs> That's you guys. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so to try and bubble it down to like three sentences, Blade is a we open a woman who's obviously pregnant is being ran through a hospital emergency. Everyone's running gurneys, flashing lights, her neck dripping blood. And then flashes, and there's a small baby crying. Fast forward, um, some douchey guy and girl uh, are out in a night in the town, walking through meat factories where there happens to be underground raves. Everybody's having a good time. The music is pumping. Insert music here. (laughs) What's this? The sprinkler system, and it's red goop fluids it's blood uh welcome to the world um i'm I'm assuming this takes place in new york and there are vampires everywhere and they know how to party Uh, (laughs) um but who's who's here the party crasher it's blade uh now wesley snipes full grown um sword sticking out of his leather jacket it just looks the ultimate badass Flips, flips aside his coat, pulls out automatic pistol, machine pistols, and just starts blowing away vampires left and right. Um, vampires in this world explode into, like, cinders and bones that then, like, collapse in on themselves. Oh, boy, they sure do. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And then Blade slips off into the night as the cops show up to pick up the remains. Um, next, we follow a hematologist. No. No, that's that's <laughs> right. It's just like that is you have described the first three minutes of Blade. <laughs> vampires have their hands in everything, and one specific vampire, Deacon Frost, is like the young upstart, half breed vampire, taking on the old guard, and there's a war within the vampire ranks that Blade and his accomplice Whistler, an old older white guy who does repairs on things and creates he's kind of like the Bond's cue to to Blade's Whistler. <laughs> um, they're creating like, you know, UV light explode like exploding grenades. You've got um what other kind of fun guns do we have? Just silver tipped stakes. You've got holy water, um, mace, and um up next is like stun guns that shoot out UV rays. Like those little silver and knives he has and the badass yeah, the a boomerang. badass sword. The badass sword is the most badass important sword. and simplest. That, like, if someone other than Blade touches it, it will shred their hand to pieces, which is comes up a lot in this movie. That is some Q shit. That is. <laughs> All this to say, the hematologist joins their ranks. She develops a spe- specific anticoagulant that he uses as, like, an injection thing to explode vampires, you know, just to add to that. 
Um, Frost. Just the case, quick summons, dusting them wasn't efficient enough. Yeah. <laughs> Frost summons a blood god into his own body, and they have a violent duel to the death, in which finally Blade explodes Frost. But of course, the war isn't over. Um, the hematologist <laughs> says, "Hey, I can I can turn you back into a human or human type." Oh, I kind of gloss over the fact that Blade is a daywalker, born of human mother, um, but with vampire DNA in his body, so he can walk during the daytime and not turn into a crispy uh, vampire nugget. All of their strengths, none of their weaknesses. Exactly. Um, he, refuses, he refuses the um, anecdote to his vampireness so that he can continue his war on the vampires in the shadows. So we could get more Blade. <laughs> so we can get two more movies. Did I miss any very important things that you want to harp back to? I don't think <laughs> very important things necessarily. Um, Deacon Frost is the turns out to be the vampire that bit his mother, so he's kind oh, of that's Blade's right. vampire daddy? daddy. Yeah, not biologically, but I don't know. I mean, biologically to a certain extent, or Bl- blood daddy. <laughs> yeah, we'll call him a step daddy. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I still don't know how vampires work, and possibly because every movie does it differently. They do the they do the rewrite thing, and this movie does take some. You know, I think crosses don't work explicitly. Um, which is which is great because, like, unless you're telling like a, a a vampire story that's really steeped in Christian mythology, like mm-hmm. if anybody could be a vampire, then there's Jewish vampires, there's Muslim vampires. Uh, which I assume Mahershala Ali will be, <laughs> who who just it wouldn't it wouldn't they wouldn't care because their 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 fear of God uh, would not be tethered to a cross, <laughs> like that's that's a vampire symbolism that doesn't doesn't matter in twenty twenty. <laughs> so I love that they just got rid of that, as long as the important things like garlic and silver, <laughs> the garlic, scientific silver. problems. <laughs> But but silver is actually not originally uh, 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 anything that affects vampires. That's werewolves. only werewolves yeah, back right? back in the day. But it's be it's evolved to be a vampire anti vampire thing. Yeah, every every vampire movie makes their own rules. <laughs> yeah, I worked on a vampire movie recently where one of the lines is like someone uh, interrogating a vampire basically, and she's like, "Now silver, or is that just werewolves?" And it's a little throwaway line, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, I mean, it was not a great movie, but it was a funny movie back in, I don't remember if it was the early 80s or the 70s called Love at First Bite mm-hmm. um, uh, with where with Dracula. And there's this great scene where there's this guy whose uh, girlfriend is, has become romantically interested in Dracula. And uh, this guy's like, I'm going to take Dracula out. And there, and the Dracula and his girlfriend are out to dinner at a nice restaurant in LA and uh, he suddenly shows up and he, you know, he's yelling, die, 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 as he shoots him multiple times with a gun. And uh, Dracula gets, you know, hit with bullets in this uh, this booth that they're sitting in. And the guy holds up the gun afterwards and he goes, silver bullets. And Dracula recovers and sits up and goes, no, that only works on werewolves. And the guy goes, oh, really? Like he's really interested in it. And then he gets tackled and hauled away to jail or to the loony bin or something. <laughs> Yeah, Dracula's pronunciation on werewolves, the way that you pronounce it, sounds... It sounds like it's a light. You know, chef kiss, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what really works about this this movie, to to start off positive? Gavin, do you have, like, a favorite moment or sequence? 
I know action movies tend to rely pretty heavily on one-liners and, you know, that's kind of like a trope or like, you know, something that like a lot of action movies do bad. Uh, I think Wesley Snipes and Whistler do really well at the, just like the small, dumb quips, like, and like the lingo that they've developed because they've been in this relationship for a while. Even calling vampires suckheads, like to me (laughs) is just like forever one of my favorite things about any vampire movie like just the link the language that they create and it is amazing yeah if this ever gets turned into a tv show or just redone like i would love to even go further in that because there's there's so i mean the, the linguist in me just just mm-hmm. loves everything that snipes has also just always been the king of one-liners in my mind mm-hmm. uh and like 10 blade quotes go to my head the problem is i can't always assign them <laughs> to the right movie and even when they're like cliches that are in other action movies like snipes saying it as blade is perfect i think it's blade trinity where he's interrogating someone and he goes no the i can't tell you the they'll kill me kill you motherfucker i'll kill you which is a line i've heard in a lot of stuff and it's never been as bad as as sorry it's never been as good as when wesley snipes says it Sorry yeah. for the occasional black voice I might delve into when I quote Wesley Snipes. It's you gotta do it's, it. Yeah, you gotta do it's it. It's the Wesley Snipes voice. It's Blade yeah. voice. It's yes. <laughs> yeah, actually, how uh, now, Lincoln? Um, what is does Wesley yeah. Snipes sound like Blade most of the time, or is that a heavily affected? I'm trying to think uh, of like other things I've seen him in. I'm trying to remember. Actually, uh, I mean, like I said, he's he's such a quiet guy mm-hmm. most of the time when he's not acting. He keeps to himself. Um, so I don't remember actually exchanging many words with him, you know, besides it being a one-sided conversation of we're ready for you. And he'd give me a nod, which is very blade like, um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I don't, re- I don't recall that he was specifically that he specifically spoke like, like that or anything like, you know, in those terms, but I don't recall that he didn't either. Yeah, I was I was actually just rewatching or watching um, Tu Wong Fu for love, uh, Tu Wong Fu with love as well, right? In which she's right. a, a plays a drag queen. Yeah, and I will the the, the tonality of the of the deliveries are a little different, so at least one of them is pretty affected. Mm-hmm. Now that was uh, a joke only for people who've seen <laughs> Tu Wong Fu for love, a movie that uh, I'm now aware of, and we'll track down Lincoln. <laughs> what so when you when you're working with Snipes on, on Blade, how do you how do you address him if you have to? Is it Mr. Snipes? Is it Wesley? Is it Blade? Because I've heard on the third movie he only goes by Blade. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I just called him Wesley uh, at the time. Um, I had said earlier he loves his drum circles and you, they'd be ready for him on the set and he'd be sitting outside his trailer with, uh, you know, four or five other people playing and doing a drum circle and uh, when I told him he's ready, you know, he just nod in time to whatever the beat was. And then he just keep playing the drums until he was ready to step out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'd get on the walkie and they'd be yelling, where is he? Where, does he know we're ready for him? And I get back on the walkie and they'd be able to hear the drums going in the background. I go, yep, he's aware. He's just uh, finishing up. He's in the drum circle. That is a process. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But, it, but I loved how chill he was that he wasn't. And I didn't push him hard obviously he was a big star uh, but i didn't push him hard like you know we're really ready or they we really got to go or anything like that you know um i just let him take his own time and i treated him like you know he's the star and he's the producer of the movie so right 
he can do what he wants and uh, go, yeah. you know, go to set when he wants. But uh, I always thought it was kind of cool that he was into doing drum circles. I thought it was kind of dug that as uh, uh, part of his personality. Well, half this podcast loves drum circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, what, what were, what were your, some of your, your guys' favorite things about going back and watching this movie? Well, for me, I think the, the coolest thing about it was the, um, the semi Asian culture that they incorporated into the vampire culture and how mm-hmm. they, uh, them and their familiars all have these little kanji, but they're not necessarily, uh, Asian symbols, but it's something that they, uh, created for the, for the movie um, but I always thought that that was cool, and it was a uh, uh, it was a take I had not seen on vampires before. And then looking back on it, I feel like, and when you were talking about all the the ways that vampires die and the different uh, ways that they have to kill vampires and stuff like that, I really feel like a lot of uh, later vampire uh, movies and TV shows um, owe a debt to the things that uh, the Blade movie trailblaze like that. There, uh, I don't think before Blade, there were vampires that would die by exploding and turning to dust. And certainly uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer adopted that wholeheartedly. But after Blade had been, you know, had come out. Actually, the and, first season uh, of Buffy uh, predates the, well, the release. So I don't know. But I don't know. I think it was like Interesting. the same year. Sometimes, but... you know. More than one person can invent the television, you know. That's true. Maybe there's maybe there's a Korean film or something that came out first. Who knows? <laughs> but it's certainly when I think of that type of dusting, like my mind goes straight to Blade, even though I've seen every episode of Buffy and Angel and like everything else that that. But I mean, that. yeah, but I mean, like uh, using UV lights to kill vampires. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was done before Blade. Oh, it feels like it should have been around forever. <laughs> like there's so much in well, Blade that are good ideas that I just assume are stolen from older things, and it's shocking how many of them are like Blade originals or yeah. Well, yeah. you do have to wonder like how much of this was pulled from the comics, and like I was trying to look it up because uh, I don't have it on hand, but like I don't know when the comics when he was first introduced into comics, but he's very clearly pulling from the '70s, which is where both martial arts. And like black exploitation yeah. films were at their peaks in terms of popularity, mm-hmm. and so that makes so much sense to be pulling all those all those pieces together. You've got like yeah, the, like you're saying the kanji on the doors, um, the like the manuscripts that like look more like scrolls than um, you know. It's not like the vampire. They say the vampire Bible, but like it looks like ancient um, scrolls. Yeah, the the vampires themselves are too are very um, international. Like it seems like it's you know. I don't want to talk about like globalism and stuff on this podcast and wind up in a different area of the podcast uh, world, but you know, they're very much talking our audience. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They're talking a lot about, um, you know, an international network of vampires that secretly run everything's in the shadows, which is, you know, so much fun to think about until you find someone who (laughs) Who deeply, deeply believes that (laughs) that it becomes a little bit less fun, but there's some, there's, like the vampire society as established in these films, there's some like fun classist elements to it. The whole thing is yeah. you've got these vampire elders and Deacon Frost is not, even though he's, he's an older vampire, he's like up in the ranks. He's not pure blood. Uh, right. He's essentially, he's a, he's a, he's a mudblood. If you want to put it in. More I was just going to say, yeah. yeah. 
um, and they, you know, he can he can only rise so far in the ranks, so he has to do a vampire coup to get where he really wants to be. Right. I, I love there's a scene where he's broken into the vampire library or whatever, and it's just sitting in a corner listening to headphones, um, like mm-hmm. tuning out the world, and like the elder vampire busts in and he's like, what are you doing here? Get out of, get out of here. But it very much feels like there's an element of like a dad trying to tell his son to get back on the right track. And the son's just like playing headphones louder and like not looking him in the eye until like he gets up and there's like a confrontation. But it's a very, very fun, like that relationship I very much enjoy. And one thing we didn't talk about was the, like one of the final elements of that coup is the, this great set piece where again, um, Deacon Frost and his buddies all put on sunscreen that they've just recently developed very heavy sunscreen and yep. bring out the vampire elder and show him a sunrise oh and it's so cool it's so much fun yeah yeah it reminds me a little bit of the Anne Rice novels mm-hmm. I've never read any of them but I have seen Interview with the Vampire and oh, Queen God. of the you Damned gotta... definitely took a lot from Blade <laughs> you, you've got to read the books man they are so much better uh, than the way the movies were done. Okay. Um, and uh, I st- started with book number two, Vampire Lestat. And it's, in my opinion, it's a better way to start the series than um, than uh, Interview with the Vampire. Okay. Interesting. I think I've only read Interview, but I remember oh. quite, I remember enjoying it. Vampire Lestat is, uh, Interview is about how much it sucks to be a vampire. And Vampire right. Lestat is about how cool it is to be a vampire. <laughs> and is that the one that got made into Queen of the Damned or is that a separate book? No, there's Queen of okay. the Damned is the third book. Separate book, yeah. I, yeah, I just, I burned through those books and I haven't read any Anne Rice since, but I burned through those books when I, uh, once I read uh, Vampire Lestat. See, it's unfortunate that like now I'm super wary of vampire books just because of the association with the most famous ones currently out. Uh, Twilight? Yeah. Uh, whereas I, you know, I love like the original Dracula, like the structure of that. And the fact that it's the first thing I can ever remember seeing having like point of view chapters, like the, the, the middle part of that book, which no one ever does when they do the adaptation, the voyage of the Demeter, which is just logs from the captain being like something weird's going on board guys. (laughs) Yeah. Could have sworn we had a few more crew members on the ship. Yeah, yeah. And I would love, <laughs> I would love a vampire movie, a Dracula tale that is just that section. Which the BBC's Dracula that came out on Netflix last year, one of the episodes is just the voyage of the Demeter. And while it's far from a oh. perfect series, and it certainly takes some crazy sci-fi liberties that are fun and work against it, there is an hour, maybe maybe an hour and a half, that's just the voyage of the Demeter story that I always wanted pretty cool. cool i feel like shadow of the vampire does some of that too which is like the movie about the making of nosferatu which i have not mm-hmm. seen regrettably it's, i haven't seen it i remember years. it not being great but like there's a lot of fun stuff in it and it's i think it's willem dafoe in the lead role too nice. yeah. yeah and he, what an amazing actor willem dafoe's yeah. dracula sounds pretty enticing my my famous my favorite dracula is the frank langella one from the 70s late 70s did you either of you guys Skeletor? see that one <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, haven't seen it yet. That. That's one. That's one that's been oh. recommended to me a lot, though. Interesting. There's, it's. I mean, it it suffers a little bit from '70s sensibilities, but mm-hmm. not not that much. I mean, his hair is the biggest '70s thing about it. Um, and there's a love scene uh, in front of a, a, a green screen of a, a burning, I don't know what, uh, maelstrom or something like that, which is a little, uh, takes me out of the movie. 
but there's some great like just gritty vampire stuff in, in that there's uh one scene in particular that sticks with me to this day with um the girl was it uh lucy who ends up becoming the vampire it's, anyway uh, <laughs> i don't know oh i was hoping sage could help me because i yeah seem I to be such a dracula in a while yeah i'm, I'm gonna get more wrong than right if i try there's a great part where they dig up her grave uh because van helsing says they have to you know and they uh they pull the lid off the coffin and there's nothing in the coffin where they expect to see her body and there's uh but there's like a hole that's been broken in the side of the coffin and a tunnel that's been dug by hand and they decide they're going to crawl into the tunnel and you're like no don't do that it's like <laughs> it's like it's like the tunnel rats in vietnam you know and you're like don't do that but it's it's such a cool thing that they have in that movie I've heard really good things too about Herzog's take on Nosferatu. It's which, got uh, some really unique plague elements. Uh, I dated someone yeah. who was obsessed with that movie, and uh, oh. I did not like it as much as she wanted me to like it. And that was yeah. the problem. <laughs> the end of the relationship. I, yeah, that happens. Contributed. I, yeah, I don't love that movie, but that part where all the rats, the yeah. like, real life, real life rats, cr- uh, run off of that ship is amazing. That shot. I remember being told that like Herzog had such an affinity for Murnau's version of the film that he walked on foot, basically did a pilgrimage from where he lived when he found out Murnau was alive, walked to the man's like you know he was on his kind of deathbed. He was he was on his way out, and got to speak to like his god for like the last bit of Murnau's life and it's well wow. I, I think Herzog just kind of lives in like a different version of reality than a lot of us though too in terms of like that kind of thing just seems to happen to him <laughs> I remember one year I was at uh the the annual DGA meeting and uh they give a bunch of um sometimes very dry uh financial reports and other things about the state of the of the director's guild um and then they open up the floor to questions or people who have you know individuals who have concerns you can walk up to a mic and just you know uh when it's your turn you can say something you know no matter what kind of a member you are and i'm just sitting mm-hmm. there you know and and uh bored by most of the things and all of a sudden Someone with a German accent, because you always identify yourself, you know, someone with a German mm-hmm. accent behind me goes, uh, Werner Herzog here, and uh, I have a couple concerns about the, uh, the what did he say, about the, pen- the pension or something like that, you know, he's, and everyone in the theater turned around, they're like, Werner Herzog. Like he needed to introduce himself at all. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was awesome that he did because, like, he got it got my attention, and everyone else yeah. in the theater, everyone like turns around at once. They're like, "Whoa, shit, that was awesome!" No, I'm I'm always happy to see him turn up in anything. I wish he was in Blade, you know, the movie. Oh my like, god! I, I didn't if think there was, was many flaws Frost. I could find with it, but you know, uh, I haven't I haven't uh, rewatched the third Blade movie recently, <laughs> but I did just rewatch the first two, and um, I wanted to hear your guys' takes on the different villains that Blade goes up against in these. Do you have like a favorite? Is Deacon Frost up there? Uh, go ahead. Sage. I mean, my soft spot is for Deacon Frost. One is because I kind of thought like Stephen Dorff was my celebrity doppelganger growing up. I don't think I quite <laughs> grew up, grew into the same face as him, but I, I don't know. That always kind of influenced <laughs> that going through. Uh, I don't know. Blade 2, I don't know quite who the official villain is. Ron Perlman's really fun in it. Yeah. Uh, well, Ron Perlman's fun in anything. And three has true. a lot of terrible villains. <laughs> like mm. the the female villain is garbage. Triple H is pretty fun. <laughs> There's a couple <laughs> smaller 
characters in it. I I simultaneously love and loathe Dominic Purcell's Dracula in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blade Trinity is a fascinating mess. It is almost a good movie. It just needs to focus on a uh. couple things and. I don't know how far you could get what it sounds like Wesley Snipes did not want to do or be in that movie. <laughs> you never know. I, you know, I, my favorite is still the first one and it's not just cause I worked on it. I just really thought, I just really liked the tone of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can't see, I remember the names of the actors more than I remember the characters a lot of times. So I'll maybe throw out names of actors well, and you can Snipes correct me Blade. on the characters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let's start there. No, but, um, I really love the the guy that uh, Donald Logue plays. Yeah, That's, Donald yeah. Logue's amazing. I think it's Quinn. I think it's yes. he plays Quinn exactly. It's Quinn. But anyway, yeah, I really like his character, and I love the comic relief that they keep doing the mm-hmm. callbacks to things happening to him. His fingers get cut yeah. off. He bur- gets burned alive and has to like grow things back. I just love right. that about the movie. I've got two fresh hands, and I get to decide which one of them to kill you with, Blade. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he keeps and thinking re- he could kill Blade the entire movie. <laughs> And I really loved Mercury in it too, you know. Um, uh, so I think both of those. Ones Which are one's great. Mercury? That's the. That's She's the, the blonde girl. She's the blonde. Oh, okay, girl. yeah, yeah, yeah. Who winds up facing off with the that's hematologist? My, that's my favorite. I can't care. Yeah, uh, that's my favorite. Like short fight in anything. Like it's almost like Indiana mm-hmm. Jones, <laughs> where he just shoots the guy brandishing the short sword. Uh, yeah. Most famous spoiler in history. So sorry about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and she approaches the hematologist doing like the rapid like going from side to side to side and like you don't have a chance against that sort of vampire that sort of uh, superhuman mm-hmm. uh, unless you just have a thing of garlic spray that'll make her explode instantly <laughs> right yeah. well that's that's the thing that this movie does um, in terms of you know the exploding cinder vampire thing is really fun at first um, and it's like, well, okay, we're going to keep this up for, you know, a two hour movie. No, we're going to develop a new thing that makes them expand like the, uh, the air guy from big trouble in little China or, yeah. um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in when he, his, uh, helmet breaks on Mars in total recall. Right. <laughs> but those deaths are so beautiful and almost more blood than I think I, I've ever seen on screen before. And like, I love dead alive, but it's quite a bit of blood. Blade has a yeah. lot of blood. My God. It's just, it's just falling from the ceiling. <laughs> it's falling from the ceiling. And like yeah. when every time someone explodes, they'll like cut back to Blade. Although he never gets blood on him. I don't think in the movie at all. Even if like a vampire explodes like next to him. Somehow the man is spotless. I mean, that could just be a costuming continuity thing. <laughs> like it's a lot you got to keep him looking good. Yeah, that yeah. too. Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure Wesley had something to do with that call. Mm-hmm. It's just like well, it does have to save opening, so much time for production to not have to do blood continuity on your leads. No, but there is something really there. It is really badass. Like because then he's always fresh for like that Dolly in look up at him with a little smile on the teeth, and like in the very the first time we meet him, we are following you know the one human in the vampire party trying to get out, crawling yeah. across a blood soaked floor. He reaches yeah. an edge of the blood pool. And finds the blood has gone around Wesley Snipes' feet. And so you see clean tile, black leather shoes, and then you look up and see Blade. It's fantastic. Awesome. Lincoln, did you have a favorite uh, moment from, from the actual film, not necessarily from the production? Uh, I, I, uh, I love the librarian in it. Um, 
and I thought oh, that yeah. was cool. Oh, very cool puppeteering. Pe Pearl, mm -hmm. I yeah, yeah, I have uh, one of my many uh, production questions about that. I heard that was like seven hundred pounds of prosthetics operated by a forklift. What? <laughs> well, I think the person had to crawl into the costume uh, from below, and uh, uh, and then they had to, and then they had to do makeup on them. Um, but, uh, yeah, that one, but I think the blood club is the most singular, I mean, it's the image that sticks with you and it's the one that's so different from any other vampire movie. And I don't even know if there's a vampire movie that's tried to copy it since. Um, but I just, I love that. It's like, it's so much excess because yeah. why, why would vampires waste blood like that? You know, <laughs> cause they're partying because they're decadent ravers. It's just, it, I mean, really, when you start to dissect it, it's stupid, right? But it looks so cool, so yeah. just do it, you know? I will say I have definitely seen the Blade Rave copied in mostly, like, the vampire TV shows. Probably because yeah. they're all on, like, CW. <laughs> and, uh, like, it's got a... They want to be sexy, right? Yeah, they'll, they'll throw, like, raves and clubs in any of those shows, whether it's anything in the Arrowverse or anything. So, like, any sort of vampire TV show is going to have blood raves. But certainly, no, cool. I've never seen it done anywhere near as cool with such an yeah. iconic song. Yeah. Well, the, um, and the cool thing, one of the cool things that people, most people don't know about, uh, that scene is that was almost Stan Lee's first Marvel cameo. Right. He did film one and it just didn't know he it did it. the movie. No, he didn't. Oh, he didn't. He was, no, he, he came, he got fit for a costume. He was going to be a cop that showed up in the aftermath mm -hmm. and, uh, have his one liner. Um, and, uh, so he was fit for a costume and everything. And, and that was actually like the biggest thrill for me of working on the movie was getting, you know, meeting Stan Lee and showing him where to go and having him fill out his contract or whatever, you know, but, um, yeah. he came and got ready for it and everything. And then the day that we were shooting it, where we would have had him in his schedule, didn't permit for him to be there. What a bummer. And I was kind of bummed. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that would have been cool to have him in it. You know, at the time I didn't know that it was going to become a thing in Marvel movies. I just thought that would have been a cool thing to see Stan Lee. And I also wanted him to show up one more day, you know, and be there again, just be in his presence. But yeah, I, I kind of always think that that's cool that I was almost at the first Stan Lee cameo. <laughs> Quick, quick tangent, and then we'll come right back to this. But yeah. um, so, were you a fan of like Marvel comics? Because I don't know if we really ad addressed that too much. Like, was there comics you were reading growing up? Oh yeah, huge fan. I wasn't reading at the time. Uh, I read in you know junior high and high school, um, and uh, Spider Man was probably my favorite. Uh, mm -hmm. But I loved the X Men, um, and the X Men. You know, Spider Man is more in a way more for kids and the X-Men is a little bit more adult of a comic or certainly mm -hmm. at the time uh, they were and a little bit more serious and certainly dealing with um, social issues uh, more than Spider-Man at the time. And, uh, but the X-Men was also, it was like the difference between Batman and Robin and Blade. Uh, you know, Spider-Man is, is, uh, or at least, you know, in the eighties was a G rated comic book and the X-Men is kind of, you know, it's kind of an R-rated. There's, you know, they're killing people, and Wolverine has no problem with opening his claws through someone's, uh, through someone's skull or something. Right. Yeah. And I always thought that was awesome. I mean, I was certainly drawn <laughs> to that, and and to this day, Wolverine's my favorite. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I I'm trying to think of like who, like for me, the early comics that I really latched onto, uh, which were given to me pretty late by my dad, were like the Dark Knight Returns, but. Mm. Um, Spider-Man was one I delved into pretty heavily. And I know just to connect it back to Blade in a seamless transition, um, 
the vampire Bor- Morbius. Yes, uh, Morbius the Living Vampire. Who is often in Spider-Man comics, uh, also shared um, the page often with Blade. And I think um, in a Spider-Man comic, Morbius bit Blade once. Oh, so but, that's... You know, right into Sage. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Morbius did bite Blade and, like, gave him kind of the rest of his abilities in now you know it's comics canon resets forever and like maybe blade is just like wesley snipes from new orleans in modern continuity i don't i don't know uh but uh yeah so it'll be interesting because there is a morbius movie theoretically coming out uh like it was supposed right. to come out this summer uh starring is jared, jared Leto. Leto too and yeah. it's like i wonder if especially considering there's some rights things where it's like it's may or may not be a part of the MCU, but it's certainly in Sony's Spider Verse. So it may or may not have any Blade cameos or references, uh, but mm. that that might might be worth looking out for for future Blade stuff. To get it back to the interaction between Blade and Whistler, which is Love some it. of yeah. my favorite oh. stuff in the scene. Um, like earlier on, when um, the hematologist again is has been rescued. Yeah. One of my favorite tiny throwaway moments in the film is, you know, we get to see Blade's car, which is like a conversation in itself. That thing's beautiful. Right. And Whistler has like the gas station in their warehouse and he just pulls out the gas thing and just is spraying gas everywhere before finally putting it into the car mm-hmm. and then lights a cigarette. <laughs> and it's just like he's just this weird rough and tumble like ex-biker dude who has a hemp yeah. leg. And um, delivers my all-time favorite uh, line in the movie, which is, you know, when Blade seems quartered and he goes, why are you smiling? Blade goes, I'm expecting company. (laughs) Whistler breaks down a wall, cocks a shotgun and goes, catch you fuckers at a bad time. real good. (laughs) My favorite line still got to be the uh, the ending one-liner of some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. Yes, that's awesome. <laughs> it's so singular. That's not a it's thing so you could put in any other movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's awesome. Uh, Chris Christopherson is awesome. That was that was another thing that I thought was so cool uh, was working with him because uh, mm-hmm. he was an icon. Yeah, did you, you know? grow up on his yeah. music at all, or I, I've never not heard at all anything Chris has done. <laughs> I've I've heard some stuff, or I had heard some stuff, but yeah, it's not like uh, he's not a musical artist that I'm particularly interested right. in. Um, but I just thought it was cool working with someone, you know, very recognizable and famous and whatever. But, uh, but again, the coolest one was meeting Stan Lee. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you, do you remember Donal Lug getting rushed to the hospital? Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, I remember a, a different person, a stunt person getting rushed to the hospital because they looked down at the wrong time. Um, but Donal, uh, I think I, I think I do remember it. I mean, I don't, but I don't remember it well. This is this is just something that I that I ripped off the IMDb trivia page, but I want to look into it more later. So apparently, he was in a, a motorcycle accident years ago, and uh, if his jaw gets offset just a little bit, it'll just it'll just it, it'll unhinge and lock. Uh, so that oh. happened during, I assume, a stunt. Uh, but it also happened while he was in prosthetics for that whole, like, for the burn mode of Donal Logue. Uh So right. he starts screaming, he gets rushed to a hospital, and the uh, EMTs immediately start treating him for burns. 
Oh, that's hilarious. Which has got to be a giant compliment for the art department, for, for makeup <laughs> and the effects. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't remember that. I mean, I remember I remember the day we were shooting the burn stuff, and I remember his stunt double, Eddie. Uh, but yeah, I don't specifically remember him rushing off to the hospital. I think, you know, if if he had to go, I think possibly it wasn't explained why he was going to the hospital or anything. You that know? does happen a lot on movies. And he's yeah. so he's he's so indistinguishable in the burn makeup that they also might have just used Eddie uh for like other parts of the scene to keep shooting, you know, with if they didn't have uh Donal suddenly. But I mean, is Eddie gonna ad lib as well? Well he's not gonna say any lines because he doesn't sound like him, but um right. I was wondering how much of that was actually him. Yeah. Donald was another person that was cool to see him then get other roles like the Patriot and stuff terriers. like that. You know? Shout out to Terriers. And Terriers. Yeah. I love Terriers so much. Yeah. Oh, man. So I, I, I know at least one of you is a Big Trouble in Little China fan. <laughs> and uh, did you recognize the, the Japanese guy who's one in the Council of the Vampires that's also in Big Trouble in Little China? No, I missed it. Who, who, who was it? So Gerald Okamura, who's a, a bald uh, Japanese guy with a mustache uh, mm -hmm. and, a, and a little bit of a beard, um, is in like the council with like Udo Kier and those stuff, uh, those people. But uh, so he's I don't know if he's actually on the books as a stunt person or what, mm -hmm. um, but he wasn't a stunt person for that. He was just a highly paid extra uh, for Blade. Um, and in Big Trouble in Little China, where you first see the Chinese standoff and uh, yeah. Kurt Russell, you know, is, is sitting in his truck and he goes, what, you know, what's happening, Wang? And he goes, Chinese standoff, don't move a muscle. Yeah. And uh, Gerald Okamura is standing in front of the truck and uh, pulls, you know, puts his hands up like it's a, a Western shootout and reaches slowly down to his, you know, the, the, uh, the pistols at either side, either hip. And he pulls him out and he starts shooting and, and yells and everything. And and another guy, Al Leung, who is a stunt guy, uh, stands up and yells and runs. And anyway, so Gerald's got that one cool shot in Big Trouble. And he's also uh, I recognized him immediately uh, when we were getting him ready for uh, for the Vampire Council in wow. uh, the Elders or whatever in, in Blade. And I was like, that's awesome. And I was taking um, Aikido at the time uh, with uh, with someone uh in uh in la and i told him about you know this one guy that i was working with he's like oh that guy's awesome he's actually a really good martial artist it's always uh it's it's always the people who aren't super famous that are the ones you get starstruck by in my experience <laughs> yeah like uh, the most the most starstruck i've ever been on a set and it was one of my very first movies but aiden gillen who plays Littlefinger, was like the guest for a couple of days on a, on a small oh movie. awesome and that was a big deal to That's me cool. not just because of game of thrones right. but uh, also like the wire he's the mayor in the wire and like that's a person mm. that i i personally respected and like the last yeah. film that i that i worked on like sam worthington showed up for a couple of days and like I respect Sam Worthington. I think he's a good actor. I know not everyone does. He's unfortunately been in like a couple really big movies that just aren't that good. Uh, Can we talk about Terminator Four? <laughs> I mean, I I suppose you always you always see Sam's eyes uh, just working. You could kind of you can see him in character thinking, and I always mm -hmm. I always really like that. But like, awesome. I didn't get starstruck by Sam Worthington, even though he was the lead in Avatar, which was one of the biggest, which was the the largest gross, the highest grossing movie of all time until more recent right. Disney stuff. 
Right. Christ, I guess Avatar is Disney now too. <laughs> and don't worry, there's more more of them coming. Yeah. Yeah, there but are. But like sometimes I'll work with like musicians or like even YouTube stars. Like those are the people that make me nervous if they are people who I personally respect and like mean a lot to me. Like no yeah. big actor I've worked with has made me as jittery as just like sitting down with Snoop Dogg for an interview. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. So like I get Snoop's those cool. those moments when like a martial artist shows up on set. You're like, oh, snap, this is really cool. There was a TV show that I was doing two years ago or something like that. And it was um, it was about it was like a miniseries. Um, and it was uh, about the uh, murders of uh, Biggie and Tupac. Oh, you were on Unsolved, the show I talk I about Unsolved. all the time and drop into various podcasts. Did you re- do you we really? Actually That's did awesome. like yeah. a, a West Coast rap feud episode. <laughs> I was, uh, that's awesome. I was, uh, I ended up working on it and, um, and I was coming in when it was already up and running. I came in on, I don't know if it was episode two or three okay. or something like that. Um, and I knew some biggie music and I didn't, I knew a little Tupac, but not as much. So I wanted to, uh, just to kind of get into the culture and everything, steep myself in Tupac as quickly as I could. So I downloaded a couple albums and I was listening to them uh, driving to and from work uh, uh, for a couple of days. And uh, anyway, so I was, uh, there's an album called Thug Life, which is the name of a group that it, that Tupac was in with his brother Mo Prem or half brother Mo Prem and some other guys. Um, and so I list, I was listening to that for maybe two days. Um, I came in to work one day to, uh, we're prepping in the office and the, um, uh, music supervisor, music coordinator, you know, uh, 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 grabbed me in the hallway as I was passing and she had two people with her and, and, uh, she goes, Oh, Lincoln, I want to introduce you really fast. This is Mo Prem Shakur. And I shook his hand, you know, but I had just been listening to him on an album and, uh, and his wife was with him and it was so cool. And I just like, it just came out of me. I was just like, it is such a pleasure to meet you. And he seemed kind of startled and taken aback, you know, and, and, but was very warm about it. And, uh, it's those kind of things that are like, you know, the surprises sometimes where you're like, you know, you just suddenly face to face with Mo Prem Shakur, you know, yeah. on that, <laughs> yeah. uh, on that uh, show with Sam Worthington, like I did not know that he was going to be there for a couple of days. Uh, I was just, I was just boom mopping it. Yeah. And uh, I, on, on our days off, I had binged all of uh, Manhunt Unabomber, which is a pretty similar show to Unsolved in the sense that it's like, you know, a crime anthology one off. Right. Um, yeah. And he's, he's the lead in it. So it's like immediately going from screen to real life without planning it. We'll keep asking you uh, questions and production questions as we have them. But before we move into the the influence that Blade had on the world and uh, pitch our Blade reboots, uh, we we got to figure out is this still good? So we're just we're talking about the first Blade here. So Gavin. Uh, would you like to tell our guest what our metrics are, how we determine if things are Well, we are have still three good. classifications that Blade can go into. It can be still good, better as a memory, or something we should take around back, uh, stake through the heart, and... Um, Let watch yeah, the I guess, sunlight. Yeah. We'll, we'll take a, or do we take Blade outside and uh, strip away its daywalker status and show it the sun? Right. Um. Say, did you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I wasn't sure which way I would go uh, walking into this mm-hmm. podcast. 
Uh, but I think the fact that I haven't really said anything bad about it. Uh, Now's your chance. Means yeah. it's, it's still good. <laughs> There's, uh, you know, I have to talk about Blade with a lot of qualifiers because it's it's treading a lot of new ground as a comic book movie, as like an action vampire movie. It's being the first to do a lot of things. And yes, some things have have done those things better since but i think uh we've never really talked about the effects in this movie uh on a on a pure action level they don't hold up but i i love how they look regardless yes yeah. i i would argue that like for the movie that it is they're great like they, yes. they are there is some dated cgi the second one which we you know didn't talk about much but the second movie has a lot looks way more dated than the first movie to me at least that's interesting yeah because it does all sorts of video game matrixy yeah. things even if the <laughs> the the vampire dust effects are dated and by blade trinity honestly like all the cgi in that looked pretty mm -hmm. good the cgi um, was still fairly new when uh when blade was shot when the original one was shot there was not a lot of cgi in any movie at the time yeah i'd heard some rumors Did, uh, that like on set they were, it was a lot of, you know, just hoping, like, let's leave this up to the nerds in post, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I feel like they didn't get a lot of reference. I mean, I think the, the thing that stands out in my memory about uh, the CGI is the whole uh, subway scene. And we were like, I was yeah. trying to wrap my head around how is this going to work? But they, you know, with like the subway going and everything, mm -hmm. and it looks, it looks great in the movie, I think. Oh, it's really fun. That's a great moment. Um, where from standstill reaches out his hand, grabs onto a subway, and just takes off. Right. I mean, the only the only disappointment I have in Blade is, like I said, some some missed opportunities. I think if you're telling a, a character about a a black action hero fighting, you know, super white vampires, although they they make them kind of multicultural, which is cool. Uh, it's a missed opportunity to like not the movie doesn't it feels like the movie blade doesn't know that the character blade is black you don't necessarily I, have to do anything with that information but like there's there are stories and themes you can tell and there my one of my favorite moments in the first blade is when blade just beats up a cop in broad daylight and no one does anything i think that's no fantastic but it's also a little uh, weird yeah i don't know i mean i think that was part of the times is it wasn't as uh people didn't weren't as aware of uh uh black people yeah. being treated differently but i think that's one of the strengths though is that it's almost it's like no one no one makes a big deal about blade being black and uh and it could have been played by a white actor just as just as easily um without any rewrites or anything like that and i think that that's a strength uh, and i prefer when uh uh, actors get to have a character uh, like minority or ethnic actors get to have a character role that is not specifically written that it has to be a minority actor or it has to be a certain ethnicity. Um, and I feel like that's what we need to move towards more is just uh, more casting of leads and roles uh, in movies without uh, uh, any worry or concern about like, they have to be a certain ethnicity to be cast, you know, and, and not writing the movie just so that you have, uh, so that you can justify, uh, you know, an Asian person or a black guy or something like that being the lead in the movie. 
Well, it becomes part yeah, of the no, character, I mean, which is like it's not. Yeah, it's not a focus. Yeah, especially if you are taking if you're taking advantage of an IP that exists and mm-hmm. changing it. I mean, that's a different yeah. argument than any of us are making. Um, but I mean, for me, it's just like the ability to see stories that I don't know as well. Uh, so uh, you're right. It's not it's not as big of a disadvantage in the Blade movie as I'm making it out to be. But certainly, when we get to see uh, more Blade properties, whether it's a movie or a TV show, like I would like uh, the story to to delve into some things that I'm. Well, not there's as some aware moments of. that like we kind of glossed over, which like specifically like that moment where you just get to see Blade. I think he throws the cop out of a window and then proceeds to beat him up in next to his cop car. And no one gives a shit. But on top of that, there's towards the end when Blade and Deacon Frost are finally face to face. Deacon Frost calls him an Uncle Tom. Which I'm going to say, like, if you're going to say it doesn't, if it ignores it entirely, it doesn't. Because, like... It doesn't ignore it entirely. I'm sorry if I said that. But it doesn't take advantage of it the way that it... Yeah, because Deacon Frost, again, is like, it's a lot about that conversation of like, you know, there is topics of pure blood. In the second movie, Ron Perlman, like they do make the direct connection to like Aryan <laughs> ideals. Yeah, no, the the themes are da- there and I want them to to run more with it and take more advantage of it. But no, the movie's, the movie's still <laughs> Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna hop and piggyback and agree with that. I, I I love it. It it actually held up better than I remembered it. Like I remember liking this movie, but it is so much fun. There's so much to love, and um, I think I'd managed to miss the uh, conclusion to it a couple times. Like I I have a tendency to fall asleep in movies, no matter how much I love them. <laughs> it's true. It's the source of strife. And so I did have to go back and rewatch this uh, twice. But like, oh man, it's so much fun. Awesome. Still good. Lincoln, thoughts? Lincoln, what do you think about the, the movie you um, uh, Well, I, I like it better than Batman and Robin. Sorry, Gavin. <laughs> uh, no, no, I uh, I like it. I think I feel like uh, of all the things I've worked on, kind of like that and Liar Liar are the most enduring uh, uh, ones that hold up. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like we've said, it's kind of the first Marvel movie without officially being a Marvel movie. Um, but it's also the first one to uh, to be successful, you know, as a superhero movie beyond some of the original Batman movies, you know, with Michael Keaton and stuff. Um, and uh, and it was also, uh, I guess, probably the first uh, R-rated superhero movie, and it was mm-hmm. very successful. Oh yeah, that's a good point. It's definitely definitely Damn, not yeah. PG, and no, certainly not, not with. There is a and certainly not with Tracy Lords in it either. Mm -hmm. So where are you going to put it on that scale though, Lincoln? You saying still good? I say still good, Uh, but now you know I want to watch it again. Yeah, fantastic. So we'll throw this on the still good pile next to uh, what else has been unanimous? Anaconda. (laughs) I'm trying to remember. You've been a little brutal at times. It's rare that we actually get (laughs) unanimous consent. Lost Boys. It's rare that we get unanimous consensus, mostly because one of us is always just unnecessarily mean about a property. It's usually yep, yeah. me. Uh, some, sometimes it is. I guess the is, key yeah. is to bring out these vampire movies because they tend not to suck. Ha ha ha. 
See, I actually think the vast majority of vampire movies that yeah, I've yeah, seen okay. are bad. I, I just did that for the bad joke, but <laughs> no, I understand. You get to make bad jokes too. It's a it's an equal opportunity. All right, so moving on. As a Marvel movie, I I put it above Age of Ultron. Okay, yeah, I would well, too. Well, all right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They're different movies, but I'm not going to waste the podcast time defending Age of Ultron <laughs> as far as I get. But uh, that that is a good segue into talking about what impacts uh, Blade had on the world. Because without Blade, I think it's very fair to say that we don't have... Um, we might still have like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but certainly on a different timeline. Because we don't have X-Men a couple years later. We don't have Spider-Man. Because we don't have a mid-budget movie that makes a bunch of money that gives studios the confidence to make big budget superhero right. movies again after Batman and Robin destroyed the genre. <laughs> right. And from a financial perspective, like what I'm saying is true. Well, <laughs> Argue whatever you, critical thing you want about Batman and Robin, and, Gavin, but like it kind of I'll shut hold down my tongue, superhero movies. And you know that Batman and Robin cost as much money as Titanic, right? Oh my yeah. God. Like production yeah. cost or... Oh yeah! Oh man, I, <laughs> Titanic made so much I was, money. <laughs> I was there. Uh, yeah, I remember actually. Uh, there was uh, because Titanic got so much bad press for how much money uh, 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 Jim Cameron spent on it at the time. Mm -hmm. It was getting so much bad press mm -hmm. until it became a blockbuster success. But there was so so much bad mouthing about Titanic and how much money he was quote unquote wasting on it. And he was defending himself in an interview. He goes, "Listen." Uh, tight, uh, the the other movie that spent this much money, and of course we know now it's you know movies are spending much more than Titanic because the other movie that spent this much money this year was uh, Batman and Robin. So compare, but I didn't spend any more than that, and no one's no one's bad mouthing Batman and Robin for spending that much money. That's true. That is not an argument I hear against Batman and Robin. <laughs> I love one of those movies, but you know it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Blade definitely affected action movies. Um, I think it certainly had an influence on The Matrix, just in terms of like wardrobe costuming. Mm. Uh, and ironically, when you watch Blade Two, like The Matrix influenced Blade Two. Uh, I think they took the wrong things from The Matrix, but uh, there's also like a, a slow motion bullet dodge in in the first Blade that predates. Matrix. Oh, cool! Like it's. Hmm. I wish I could have been a little bit older and watched Blade when it came out to like actually experience them first and actually know which ones are first and which ones were just from a smaller movie the year before I'd never seen. Mm -hmm. uh, what what else? What else am I missing? Well, I mean, I mean, what else do we get? Because we, I mean, Blade. I guess if you're talking about the the uh, them breaking like down some boundaries too, like Dead Deadpool gets a lot of uh, the benefit for being one of the first R-rated comic book movies and showing that it worked. And it's interesting that Blade, you know, like you said, it. I don't know if it really opened the doors to all of that necessarily, but like it, it definitely rattled them, like kicked at it, maybe chipped the lock a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it shows it's it's profitable, and we get yeah. like a couple Punisher mm -hmm. movies. We get not not as many R-rated superhero movies as as I would like, but also not all of them have been as good as Blade. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is true. It launched Lincoln's career. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um. Yes, Kevin. I was able to connect this movie to Space Jam. Uh, <laughs> Are we playing Six Degrees of Space Jam? Yes. Six Degrees of Space Jam. Let's do it. Um, I think uh, in three moves. Anyone else want to take a... Oh, I was not... Hold on, hold on. Uh, I, I, can, I can do it. Ooh. So, um, is it two moves? So, uh, 
Nabouche Wright, who played the, the hematologist, right? Mm -hmm. Dating Shaquille O'Neal, who uh, who then uh, obviously is uh, Lakers with uh, Michael Jordan. Interesting. I, I was going to... Okay, yeah, wow. <laughs> I've got it in two... Shocking Shaq is not in Space Jam. <laughs> yeah. Right. But he... he uh... But that is how loose we play our six degrees. Yeah. Game, so everything you said is fine. I was... I, so my connection is Wesley Snipes, also in Blade 2, with none other than Ron Perlman, who shared the screen with Michael Jordan in Looney Tunes Back in Action. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got... I got nothing. <laughs> if I come up with it before the end of the podcast, I will interrupt whoever's talking to say it, but I got nothing. Well, I guess we get to move on to Sage's favorite part of the show, which is forcing oh, us all is. to reboot this movie, um, even though it's already being rebooted. Right. Yes. We're reviving a canceled undercover police program from the 80s. Oh, it's not a remake. It's a reboot. You see, the guys in charge of this stuff lack creativity. What the fuck is a reboot? So all they do now is recycle shit from the past. We're working on less of a shriekle and, and more of a screamake. Expect us all not to notice. I like it. Another! So, Lincoln, everything we loved as, as children, as young adults, uh, will eventually get repackaged for profit at a... Uh, it's going to happen, regardless of whether you want yeah. it or not. So if if you are making a Blade movie today, if you're if you're developing a Blade property, whether it's a sequel or whether it's a reboot, uh, what does that look like? Well, I feel like uh, it's almost natural to have uh, uh, Night Rider in it or Ghost Rider in it. Um, you got demons, uh, and then maybe they're very angsty yeah, bikers with uh, uh, demonic backgrounds, and, and yes. almost natural to have uh, Moon Knight uh, in it, also um, mm. uh, cameo uh, maybe. But uh, yeah, as far as casting goes, I, I would have had to have thought about this <laughs> earlier. I think so. Well, we can go first, and if you've yeah, got you any too. any ideas, okay. Sage, why don't you, it sounds like you I might mean, have given us some thought. I really, I didn't give that much. I mean, what I truly want was uh, when uh, when Netflix had those Marvel mm -hmm. properties, uh, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, like that. I want, I want a TV show of Blade where you can actually go in. I think it's a probably a better way to explore uh, those those uh, race relation issues that are missing from the movie that I personally want to see. But it's also just a better way to see brooding and angst. Uh, which I feel like could could be interesting to see in a lot of the Blade shows. I mean, the his motivation's very obvious. Uh, you could you could go board, you know, vampire killed his mom, and vampires suck, and they all need to die. <laughs> but uh, you know, even even the the Punisher gets more specific motivation. And uh, my my point is, I want I want a TV show. Okay. And uh, there's a there's a chance that we'd get one uh, with Disney Plus. I don't know what those Marvel shows are going to look like yet. Uh, the Netflix kind of Marvel Knights model is really what I wanted. Maybe this will be a, a good home for it. Uh, they are doing a Moon Knight show with Oscar Isaac. Can't Isaac. wait. <laughs> um, yeah, I would love to see more Ghost Rider in that. Uh, Disney Plus certainly gives its shows the budget to be comparable with the vision I have in my head. Uh, I don't I don't know. Who would I put as, as Whistler? I feel like if you throw Ryan Reynolds in that movie somewhere as Deadpool, uh, you get a lot of very great specific uh, Hannibal King jokes from uh, Blade Trinity. Well, if I may, um, now Lincoln, you mentioned a bunch. You've, you both mentioned a bunch of Marvel 
crossover characters. And I know as rare as it is um, for DC and Marvel to, to blend the lines, um, as you all know, Scooby-Doo is tied to the DC universe. Uh, he's met Batman on multiple occasions. Um, I believe he's also teamed up with Superman. But I would like to see the Blade-Scooby-Doo crossover. Now, of course, this would be a Scooby-Doo movie primarily, but what the parts of it that I would want to see is like, again, the Blade ultra serious, but having to put up with like Shaggy and Scooby. And behind it all, I want the reveal to be that behind that vampire mask, because of course it's not a real vampire this time, it's actually Whistler having betrayed him to try and um, finally turn over to profit on that, uh, that, on that, um, what do you call the waterfront, yeah, New Orleans, that, 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 uh, that yeah. warehouse property. <laughs> yeah, that's that's my pick. Okay. I like that. That's a that's a little out there. I actually, I do have a, a movie pitch that's slightly more thought out, even though I still don't have casting. Uh, when we get to Blade Trinity, you have uh, you have Dracula in Blade's world, which weirdly puts it in our world because everyone in that universe knows who Bra- Dracula is. The Dracula movies still exist. The Dracula comics, every every Dracula mm-hmm. property exists in Blade 3, which has Dracula show up. Um, and I think it's a super missed opportunity to put Dracula in a Blade movie when you could put Blade in a Dracula movie. Like, have something that is more horror tinge. Get one l to do a Blade movie. And make it horror tinged with those moments of incredible violence and and action. Nothing, nothing more than that. Well, I'd like to see. I mean, I think their casting of Mahershala uh, Ali is perfect. No yeah. notes. Um, yeah. But I would love to see uh, as a character or even a cameo. I'd love to see DMX show up uh, in a interesting in, in a Blade in the next Blade movie. I don't know that they will, but DMX is another person who. Uh, uh, is interested in martial arts. Um, and I would love to see a great sure. martial artist, uh, probably as a bad guy, uh, maybe like a Jet Li or something like that. Um, in Who the... was apparently rumored for the Deacon Frost rule? Oh, yeah, this was going to be Jet Li's first American movie, and he did Lethal Weapon 4 instead. Interesting. Well, it would have been, uh, would have been amazing because <laughs> Stephen Dorff doesn't know martial arts, but. Uh, uh, Jet Li, uh, but he's fantastic in Lethal Weapon 4, too, where he takes the gun apart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, we at least get him in, in Lethal Weapon yeah. 4. But, uh, and then, uh, who was the guy that was in uh, 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 Donnie... Donnie Yen. Donnie Yen. Yes. Donnie Yen would be Blade a good two. one, maybe, to be in in, uh, in a Blade I, movie. I did feel like he was underused in Blade 2. I was so disappointed. Is he how... in Blade 2? Yeah. Oh my god! I gotta rewatch it. <laughs> oh yeah, and it, he's they they do they do wrong by him. He gets like one line of dialogue oh, and shit. like gets he's he's the choreographer. Yeah, though, he should too. be the, the and I think lead. like it might have oh, been that, okay. like so it's one of those you know, things where yeah, he was really more focused on that, that. Does happen a lot. Which I will say like the combat feels very different in Blade Two, in in res- in certain respects. Interesting. You know what? You could just put a Blade movie in China. Mm-hmm. Why the Blade not? Blade anime series does have him going like around <laughs> yeah. Asia. Uh, and fighting like their traditional the vampires. Hopping vampires? I guess every country has the hopping what? vampires. <laughs> oh, you said? Did you say Japan oh, or I China? Have, I have no idea. 
Um, I didn't. See, I watched one that was in the Philippines oh. a little bit, uh, and they have like their own traditional vampire. Whether it's really connected to to Western vampires or just a similar thing, like every culture's kind of developed. Yeah, this thing. Philippine so you vampires just have are different. Blade in a part of the world I don't know. Okay, rather than just having him in, I don't actually know which movies, <laughs> which uh, cities the Blade movies take place in. He's holding a New Orleans map that raves established as being in Los oh, Angeles. Really? He might be like moving between places. I think the third one's in New York because it's got like the classic Marvel, like going over Brooklyn mm-hmm. or whatever. I just assume because it was Marvel, but it took place in New York. Well, this is before every Marvel movie took place mm. in New York. But the second and third one were shot in the Czech Republic, I believe. Sure. That Famous Czechoslovakian um, Wesley Snipes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like we've got a writer's room going here for it. And I'd like to, and I'd yes. like to riff off of the uh, Chinese or China idea. And I'd, and I would say that uh, uh, a blade reboot should start in, um, in uh, Shogunate Japan. Um, and you should have a Wolverine living in uh, feudal Japan and start the story there, introduce the vampires, come up to present day, Wolverine's still dealing with or getting sucked back into the vampire uh, world and Blade shows up and it becomes a Blade movie all of a sudden. That would be great, especially like examining um, like the the immortality problem mm-hmm. from different, yeah. different, like you put a non-vampire in there. That's, that's cool. That's also Blade in the comics is much older too, not like, shogun not like hundreds of years old but uh the in the blade movies he's 30 like he's born in the 60s but he's, he's so to a period so to a period piece right 70s yeah. throw it in period just, just lean more into the black exploitation oh, yeah. martial arts aspects of it and get caught oh. up in like you know oh, oh that's what you do is you cut from yeah you blade. cut from uh feudal japan to wolverine <laughs> sit wolverine watching blackula uh in a theater <laughs> in harlem and uh, and then all hell uh, breaks loose, and you've got vampires, and then uh, enter Blade on the scene. That's that's pretty good. And you and you ask uh, you ask Quentin Tarantino to direct it. Oh my god! Because he would be perfect for a movie in the seventies. Mm-hmm. For a Blade movie yes. in the seventies, that'd be an equal oh, that'd amount be pretty, of blood. Yeah. That'd be pretty perfect. <laughs> it would be awesome. All right. Well, I think we we got at least one. And so there you go. Leonardo DiCaprio is Deacon Frost. Okay. We're gonna say Blade. No, <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, I feel like we've uh, we've covered a lot of our recommendations in the course. If you have anything you want to highlight really quick, if you like Blade, what's something we haven't talked about you might like? Blood Fist Six. <laughs> yes. <Is> that... No. <laughs> if you like Blade, you might like Blood Fist Six. <laughs> you might. I mean, I think any good uh, Hong Kong movie, uh, The Killer, or uh, Once Upon a Time in China. Yeah, I'm going to recommend for a very different vibe. Like if you want to see vampires, uh, check out Mr. Vampire. Um, very different version of hopping uh, Chinese vampires. Okay. I guess I plug Angel like always. Angel. I, don't know. I worked uh, on Angel briefly. You worked briefly. on Angel? <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. If we If we go through like our discography on the podcast, have you worked on like all of these movies? Oh, probably <laughs> Sounds not. Sounds like it almost so far. <laughs> All right, you got you got three i'm counting us talking about the people tupac as you working on it yeah uh well i think that uh man we've covered a lot of blade today i'm I'm so excited to have had you on do you have anything to to plug what are you doing in the world during quarantine? Um, well i'm i'm working uh <laughs> very busy working on a show now 
Uh, and then uh, every Sunday, my wife and I do uh, our own live stream on Facebook called A Side with the Wine and Vinyl Geeks, which can be found on uh, the Medic Explorer page. Medic as in uh, mead, the drink, wine made oh. from honey. Oh. And uh, it's just my page that I post stuff about uh, wine and spirits and, and stuff. And, and uh, we like to throw uh, a an album on the turntable, a uh, piece of vinyl, and play that. And we open a different wine that we've never had before. And we drink that. And we talk about the wine. We talk about the vinyl. Not being, uh, not being experts on either music or wine, but uh, loving them both. Would you recommend a specific pairing with Blade? Oh, it's what wide would you watch while while watching? It would have to be something dark, dark red, right? Um, oh, there's so many things. Uh, (laughs) I would, uh, I would go with something from, uh, from Spain, Mm -hmm. like a Tempranillo, or, uh, or I'd be really interested to do uh, a Chinese red wine because China is this huge emerging wine market and they're growing, uh, all these uh, wine grapes in China now and, and making really good wines. Um, and I haven't gotten to try any of that. So I would love to try something oh, like fascinating. that. Fascinating. So this is like a, a new industry coming out. Cause I know like traditional <laughs> wine in Southeast Asia, especially like palm wine and stuff. I have not been too impressed. No, by, no, they're, I mean, the world's they're changing. doing grape wine. Uh, and China, I think is maybe spending the most money on, on buying wine of, uh, any country in the world it's become kind of a cool thing for the uh you know the the young elite to do is to know about wine and drink wine and have wine collections Hmm. that's really cool well i also have a wine show but i'm not going to plug it to uh to take away from but tell me i'm interested so uh no i I do not have (laughs) a wine show darn it (laughs) i don't have much of anything except for this and like writing on the side but as these uh podcasts just kind of come out whenever they fit into the market like who knows you have us sage uh, you have us yeah. uh gavin do you have anything um no not really you can check out my instagram at yeah. gavin v murray um you know uh and give blade a watch that's all i got to say Watch Blade and uh, pair it with an emerging Chinese wine. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, out, thank Lincoln. you very it's much. It was fun to uh, remember a lot of the stuff that I uh, that I did back then and, and to talk about other stuff and talk about uh, Marvel and uh, superheroes and stuff, and which is uh, one of the things I love to talk about. Uh, let, we'll let the uh, soothing sounds of a, of a blood rape take us out. Ah!